Welcome back, everyone. Uh, I'm Emiliano Vera, and this is Herb Garrity, <laughs> and we are the Rehumanized Podcast. Uh, so, who do we have today, Herb? Well, today is our 10 year anniversary special. And we're just going to have Amy, Mur- not just, we're going to have Amy Murphy on the podcast. I shouldn't say it's just Amy. It's just Amy. Um, but if you follow the Rehumanized podcast, you probably know who Amy Murphy is um, because she is the founder of Rehumanized International. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she has kind of been like the the poster child for First Life Matters Journal, then Rehumanize uh, for the past uh, 10 years so lots of us in the consistent life ethic movement got involved because we ran into amy at a conference or something or uh, randomly found a lmj newsletter or facebook page or something like that um, so we're gonna be talking to amy about you know some of some of her experiences over the past 10 years with the organization yeah i'm excited this is the the 10th anniversary. It's not the 10th anniversary of the podcast because we've only had that for about a year, year, two years. I don't know how, how, long, how long. Podcasting wasn't cool until yeah, like the pandemic. <laughs> it was cooler. It was cool before then, but we didn't start getting good at the podcast until the pandemic because it was one of the few things that we could do <laughs> during the pandemic. Um, but yeah, we're going to have Amy on. We're going to talk about the history of Rehumanize. Um, or Life Matters Journal, as some call it, but we'll talk more about that history. Yeah, anything else you want to share before we just let Amy on? Uh, let me think. I met Amy first at a Chicago March for Life, probably. Um, probably. But before that, I had been like online friends with Amy for ever like since the beginning of LMJ probably. So it was really cool. I hear a lot. Yeah, it was really cool to, I mean, it's, it's weird because the consistent life ethic movement, I think uh, the, the framing of consistent life ethic, it's not new, but it's something that is definitely like it's outside of the narrative of the partisan system. And so it doesn't have a whole lot of institutional backing. So I think you do get to kind of meet the leaders in it a lot more often because it is less institutionalized so far. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, at least in my experience, I think just if you end up, in the movement you become a leader pretty quickly i mean look at you you we haven't even met and you're already like hosting the rehumanized podcast we we have not actually met in person i guess yeah we we the consistent life ethic movement sort of like yeah i agree it's it's a because it is still a small but growing community um it's pretty easy to to meet your heroes and for a lot of people myself included back in the day Amy Murphy is one of those heroes. I guess she's still one of my heroes. That's always a weird way to phrase it. But I now see her every day, so it, it it's easier to think of her as a real person, which we should all think of her as because she is, in fact, a real person. And we're going to talk to that real person here in a minute. Come on. <laughs> Hi, Emiliano. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about our 10-year anniversary as an organization. You have been here since the beginning. So uh, talk to us a little bit about, I mean, how are you feeling? How are you feeling on the the decade of Rehumanize? <sighs> Big feelings. Very wistful and sentimental and proud and sad a little Uh, I feel like there should be a a word for like wow I can't believe 10 years have flown by and I'm not the executive director anymore but I'm so proud of where everything has come and I'm sad that I'm not gonna be like 
you know, head honcho going forward, but I am more than anything, just really grateful uh, for everything that has led to this point that has led to us being active for 10 years that has led to such great uh, youth involvement and passion and leadership um, from people who started as interns like Herb and Maria uh, to people who have only become, you know, more recently invested like you or uh, like Sarah, for example. Uh, I don't know. I'm just grateful for everyone on our team uh, who has really made this possible. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I actually don't know. I don't know how many people only listen to the Rehumanized podcast and don't follow us otherwise. I assume mm-hmm. it's few people, if any. Um, but yeah, I don't know if we ever made the announcement that you were no longer executive director of Rehumanized because <laughs> I, I've been the host of the podcast before I was executive director and then just continued. I don't know right. if I ever said that. So for context, if you are one of the, I imagine cannot be more than like five to 10 people who only listen to the podcast and don't follow our other work, um, Amy founded Rehumanize International 10 years ago, and I just, me, Herb Garrity, just came in a couple months ago as executive director. Um, But yeah, so it's been 10 years since the founding. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about why you created this beast and why we're all here? (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, honestly, it kind of does have a life of its own. So I guess the word beast is a, a fitting moniker. Uh, I started the organization in 2011, uh, only like two months after I graduated from undergrad. So I was 22 years old and I had been involved in like consistent life ethic activism. When I was an undergrad, um, there was a, a pro-life club that eventually like adopted the consistent life ethic formally and was called Life Matters at Carnegie Mellon. Um, And I had been a part of that. And, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I had done a a couple like speech competitions and stuff like that related to pro-life ethics. But honestly, like I really felt like my goal in life had to be to go and unsettle the rest of the world because I had become so unsettled by this radical conversion that I had when I was a teenager. Because when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, um, I was an atheist. I was pro-choice. I was very liberal. Growing up in California, it was just kind of considered the thing to do if you cared about human rights you had to be pro-choice but when i was 16 uh, and you might have heard this on another episode of our podcast where i share my story um i had been dating this guy on again off again and um Eventually, I told him that I wasn't comfortable having sex with him anymore, and he broke up with me. And then on Valentine's Day that year, um, he raped me, and then a couple months later threatened to kill me if I didn't have an abortion. And that whole experience of, you know, wondering, oh my gosh, what if I'm pregnant? And thinking about nothing but abortion up until that moment when my life was threatened, it was world changing for me because I realized, you know, I can't be like him. I can't use violence to get what I want in life. And I didn't have a word for it at the time, but I knew then that I couldn't use violence, that violence was not the answer to crisis. And so I adopted the consistent life ethic Uh, very begrudgingly became pro-life. And, you know, from that moment on, I knew that I had to go around and unsettle the rest of the world, that if we were settled, if we were comfortable, if we were complacent in a world that was so comfortable with violence, that 
it was an act of complicity. So, um, you know, that led to me doing, you know, these speech competitions in high school and joining the pro-life club when I was an undergrad and getting involved with protests. And then when I graduated, I was working at a, like a med express urgent care center. I was working at an urgent care center and knew that I couldn't be done working for human rights. So I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. I went on Facebook and I polled several of my pro-life friends um, from various different groups on Facebook. And I was like, hey, if I were going to start a conference or a magazine, which do you think would be easier to start and would you help? And the overwhelming response was start a magazine. Um, I'm not sure if I totally knew what I was getting into, especially with the decline of print publication, (laughs) (laughs) but it was on August 15th, 2011 with a friend that I had made from an LGBT pro-life group, Nick Neal, um, you know, he and I together started brainstorming and we're like, okay, this is going to be called Life Matters Journal. And we knew that we wanted it to be a space for education and discourse on the consistent life ethic. And we wanted it to be an inclusive space where people from any and every background would feel welcome, uh, would feel like they could participate, would feel like their voices could be heard. Um, you know, I wanted it to be a space where I would have felt welcome as 16 year old, you know, like gay pro-life atheist liberal, like I I would have wanted to feel comfortable there. And frankly, I didn't feel very comfortable within the larger pro-life movement Um, because I was gay and because I had been an atheist, because I was a feminist. And yet at the same time, I also didn't feel totally comfortable within larger human rights movements because so many mainstream organizations like the ACLU and Amnesty International support abortion. And so I really didn't know where I fit in and what my space was and starting Life Matters Journal um, really was the beginning of this space where I felt comfortable and this movement for education, discourse, and action on the consistent life ethic. So, uh, what were like some of the major issues at the time and how are they similar or, or different from now? What do you mean issues like, like topic or like problems with starting? What like what were some of the things that what like what was the first article that uh, you published in Life Matters Journal? Like what were the, Ooh, the your question? What were like the <laughs> the things that Life Matters Journal was talking about uh, at that time? I mean, I know like we've got <laughs> the same kind of larger broader societal issues because you know we haven't fixed any of you know war or abortion or (laughs) euthanasia or uh anything like that human rights abuses in general uh but kind of i mean what was the news cycle like like what were the things that you guys were rolling with in terms of narrative yeah uh that's a good question so um Unlike right now, where we publish articles on the blog several times a month and then condense them into um, copies of the magazine six times a year, at that time, we were publishing four times a year, and um, we published immediately like to the print version. So like the first article that was printed like it's really more like what were the first 12 articles (laughs) that were printed. Um, But let's see, I I have it open right now. Um, 
So we had a little who's who of Life Matters Journal that introduced the team. Um, a short essay called What is the Consistent Life Ethic by Nick Neal. We had a um, Why We Exist and a Call for Support letter from myself. Uh, I was Amy Bedoy at the time. It's before I was married. And then we had a section on current events and the consistent life ethic. Um, and we had a piece called The Rebels Storming Tripoli, um, which was about rebel forces in Libya uh, storming Gaddafi's capital in Tripoli. Uh, and then we have a terse nonpartisan assessment of our political prospects by Julia Smucker uh, that kind of briefly went over the, the, the two-party system and how we as consistent life ethic folks don't really feel comfortable within that two-party system. Uh, we had a piece called The Abolition of Capital Punishment in Illinois by Nick Neal. Uh, he was based in Illinois uh, at the time. I mean, he grew up born and raised in Illinois, but he was in college at the time. And then we had a piece, a very spicy piece, um, by the late, great Mary Crane Durr called Family Planning Freedom is Pro-Life. Um, the next issue of the magazine, I believe, had something about how, like, uh, artificial contraception is not pro-life. And, like, we, it was like a companion set of pieces, um, kind of giving two different opinions on that topic. And then we had Just War, Just Peace, or What by Bill Samuel, uh, which goes over principles of just war theory, how it's been misused, and the movement towards um, theories of just peace instead of just war. Um, and then the final article, I think it's the final article, is called Justice in the Face of Unknowing, which is by myself and... Um, a friend I had from college uh, named Steve Agin. And it was about basically the underlying idea of like, if we don't know, if we can't know uh, whether or not the preborn human is a person, what should our uh, ethical and legal response be? Um, and it basically argued that uh, if we can't know whether or not the preborn is a person, according to legal and social constructs, um, but we know that they are a living, unique uh, human organism, that we should uh, act with caution and um, therefore not do abortion. Um, I think that's yeah. one of the There's things... Also Poetry. Oh. Sorry. There's sorry. There's there's two poetry pieces. Ooh. Art. And uh, one is called At 40 Weeks. And another is called Mother to Child. And it's actually like those two are by sisters, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and the next one is the last piece is 10 Years Later by me. And it's about what have we learned from our response to the September 11th attacks uh, because this was published in fall 2011. We pulled together our first issue. Uh, let me see. How, how long did it take? Um, it took us less than a month. This was published September 13th, 2011. And we started the organization on August 15th. Wow. So. <laughs> I think that's one of the really interesting things about uh, the journal is that, I mean, from its first issue, it presented not just like a very upfront patient uh, vision of like, this is what we believe as consistent life ethic people and kind of placing the, the kind of hard limits, but also opening up the space for debate within the consistent life ethic movement and being like, what ha actually how should we think about some of these topics that are uh less clear like just war uh so 
do you think that there has been any or I'll put it this way like what is the relationship of uh, rehumanize then to other uh, groups in the consistent life ethic movement and uh, how does it end up being unique among those yeah that's a good question um, and when we were founded we were one of two consistent life ethic organizations that existed at the time uh, the first being consistent life network uh, priorly known as the seamless garment network um, which kind of existed as a online and sometimes print <laughs> version uh, of like a phone book database thing that's you know that really served to show here are all these different organizations that exist that embrace the consistent life ethic and they had a conference every five years and I knew that they existed because I had been to the students for life of America conference when I was in undergrad and I had seen their booth. I'd seen their table. Um, and I was like, Oh, well they don't really have any ongoing publication. Like there isn't a space for ongoing dialogue with these issues. Um, and so that really was like the first impetus um, the second, of course, being that I really wanted to build a youth-oriented space. Um, you know, like when we started, Nick was still in undergrad and I was just out of college. Every other new board member that we added in the first two years, I think, was either was like in some form of university schooling at the time. So being this organization that could bring the consistent life ethic to a new generation really was this central motivation for us as these young creators, as these co-founders of this new startup. Um, we wanted to present an option outside of the political binary, and we wanted to make it accessible to young people. Do you think... I like a, yeah, sorry. Like that because it's been run by young people that's i mean how has that affected like the perception of rehumanize at all how, yeah. how how do the they take to us youngins stirring up a ruckus <laughs> i think it really depends on the context um i think sympathetic people towards the consistent life ethic have really tended to be uh, really excited that there was a youth-oriented arm of this movement that was growing. Um, I remember being, oh gosh, I was probably not even 20 years old. Um, and I was at a Students for Life of America conference, and I had just met Kelsey Hazard. And I was thinking to myself, like, oh, my gosh, like, she's my age. Like, you know, maybe, honestly, like, uh, not even a year older, I think. And I was like, if she can start something to fill a need in the movement, I can start something to fill a need in the movement. And I literally walked up to Kristen Hawkins at the end of that conference. And I was like, hi, someday I want to be just like you. So, like I had these two, I mean, and honestly, like Lila Rose had also like been at March for Life events and I knew who she was because I was from California. Um, I already knew David Delighton. Um, and so like I had these examples of young people who were helping the movement in massive ways by leading organizations that really fit a niche that hadn't been met before. Um and so because of that, I really didn't feel like I couldn't do it. Like there was never any time where I was like, oh, no, I'm too young. I was so grateful when within the first year of our founding, 
the Consistent Life Network invited me and Nick. And uh, I also had my friend Catherine, who was the head of the Life Matters Club at Carnegie Mellon at the time. Uh, they invited us to come speak at their 25th anniversary conference. And I was so flattered and humbled by that because we hadn't even been around a full year at that point. And they invited me to come speak on the topic of engaging young people in the consistent life ethic movement. Um, and so that was a really warm welcome right there off the bat. Um, some pro-life oldsters um, would kind of view us with suspicion because we were secular, you know, like didn't have a religious background that we adhered to and because we were nonpartisan. And, um, you know, even to this day, you know, from time to time, we will get accused sometimes within the same week of being a right wing pro Trump, like conspiracy to bring down the anti-war left while at the same time also being accused of being a Soros funded communist, uh, like underground group that is trying to bring down the pro-life movement. <laughs> so honestly, like it, it just depends on the person, um, when it comes to how we're received. But I think in general, within both movements, you know, like the pro-peace movement and the pro-life movement, people see us as a way to reach people who wouldn't necessarily normally listen to that peace message or that life message. Um, and so, Generally, I, I'd say we're we're welcomed, which is something I'm really grateful for. Now it's been ten years. What do you think have been some of the successes of uh, Rehumanize? That's a really large question. Peppy, Peppy with the success with the successes. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Take a take a crown. <laughs> Some of my favorite accomplishments that we have achieved so far um, have included things like me being able to be on MSNBC back in January of 2017 for the Women's March on Washington. Um, that was an unparalleled experience of being able to be interviewed on live TV. Uh, it was 4 a.m. and I was exhausted, but it was phenomenal. <laughs> One of my other favorite memories um, from, you know, the past 10 years has been our first ever collaborative trip to go to the RNC and DNC events back in 2016. Herb and Maria were both interns. We had a third, Chrissy, at the time. And we had developed these handouts that asked the question, you know, like, why should conservatives embrace the consistent life ethic? Why should liberals embrace the consistent life ethic? We had libertarians and greens as well. Since then, we've also added the why should socialists embrace the consistent life ethic? I um, wrote that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just like we just brought those pamphlets with us and, you know, some other materials about the organization and did protest slash outreach slash interviews. Like we were just out there willing to talk to anyone and everyone who would hear our consistent life ethic spiel. And we ended up getting interviewed by such a broad range of publications. Um, I think that was the, the one summer where we just had like this massive list of media coverage, you know, that we added to our ongoing document of like media coverage about Life Matters Journal or Rehumanize. Um, and getting to have those conversations was really phenomenal. And we joked at the time, like, oh, 
the mission of Life Matters Journal is to uh, educate and convince the media. <laughs> because all of these media talking heads were like, who are you? Like, because we had a sign that said, war is not pro-life, abortion is not pro-peace. And people were just like, what? What what side are you on? And we're like, ha we're on all the human sides, which means we're not Republican or Democrat. Ha ha. We're also not libertarian or socialist. We're just here to be consistent life ethic. And it was really fascinating uh, how many people were like, wow, I never thought about it like that before. Um, you know, I really have to take this home and think about it. And that was really encouraging for me. Um, you know, like we were still a really young organization, um, you know, like only five years old. And so having that experience, I think really bolstered me, honestly, like through the next four years. <laughs> um, yeah, that was one of my other like great memories slash accomplishments. Um, there are so many others though, that I could include, honestly. Um, like I'm still so proud of all of the different intern projects that we had over the years, including Mary Grace Coltharp's, uh, a consistent life, uh, handbook on like how to live the consistent life ethic daily. Um, there's several white papers that we've published, one on nuclear weapons, one on the medicalization of violence, and one on restorative justice after abortion. Um, we have published so many issues of Life Matters Journal. We have reached thousands upon thousands of young people with this message of the consistent life ethic through our speaking engagements. Um, I remember one summer alone, we traveled something like 4,000 miles for talks, like just to give presentations on the consistent life ethic or pro-life feminism or theories of just defense or rejecting the two-party duopoly. You know, like it was such a wild summer and that little blue car, we put on over 100,000 miles on that car just in the time that it was with <laughs> the rehumanized team. Um, so we've accomplished so much, um, you know, now to the point where it, it made it really easy to pass on the reins to her because we had such a solid foundation of, you know, work and projects, but also like we were really clear about our mission from day one. Um, so I don't know, I guess the, uh, the last big accomplishment that I'd say I'm really proud of is the fact that we've been able to transition leadership um, and make it possible for me to take more care of my health and to really make sure that we're a starfish of an organization and it's not just all about me. You know, like it is about this movement for human dignity, for ending violence against all human beings. Herb, you've been here for a while now. Uh, how have you've seen what the last half decade, right? Since 2016. Yep. So how have uh, you seen the organization grow over the past five years, at least? I mean, pretty radically. I think that we, we've been talking about life matters journal, um, but we haven't been explicit about what that is. Uh, if you don't know, Life Matters Journal is what Rehumanize International was founded as. Uh, technically, we still are Life Matters Journal, according to the IRS, and Rehumanize International is just like a doing business as name. Um, so they both are our name. But um, as Amy was saying, we were originally founded just as a magazine. Um, and I came on when we were still Life Matters Journal. And I remember at that time, I was sort of like, this isn't just a magazine. Like I'm doing all of this outreach and I am, um, even at that time I was like doing speaking engagements, um, very early on for rehumanize or for life matters journal. Um, mm -hmm. and I think we all sort of had the sense that this wasn't just a magazine or it wasn't just a journal. Um, and so I think the, the biggest 
change that I have witnessed um, has been the sort of reshaping of our mission to go from what we used to really focus on was education and discourse around the consistent life ethic to now with the name change in 2017 to rehumanize international. Um, we maintain that education and discourse focused mission, but we've also added the word action. Um, and that has led to us really be able to, um, flourish in our understanding of ourselves as activists and, um, organizers, as opposed to just, um, and I don't, I, I, earlier I said just, it's just Amy Murphy. Um, I don't mean just in a, um, in a derogatory way. Um, but we, we weren't solely a magazine. Um, we were, we were more than that. Um, we were this organization that we are now, which I think is only growing. Um, this past weekend, we had our board and staff retreat where the whole team got together. And unfortunately, because COVID is still real, um, I think a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, like, a couple episodes ago, I was like, well, COVID's basically over now because I was vaccinated and I thought, surprise, into the future and realize that this is never ending and I'm miserable. Um, but we, we had a virtual retreat um, and we got together and reflected on the past 10 years for me, just five years. Um, but we've had people that have been on board since the beginning. And I think that, I mean, in the short time that I've been here, we have grown exponentially. I think I've seen, I, I used to run our social media and I remember, I think I remember passing like 5,000 followers on Facebook and now we're double that. And that was like a couple years ago. Um, and so I think that as we have gone on, um, we, I feel like I meet less resistance when I go to places, like when I go to something like the March for life or a world beyond war conference, or, um, a couple weeks ago, I was at a death penalty action event, uh, it's no longer like I have to defend my uh, my presence there. I still have to do that a little bit. But most of the time at all of those events, people will be like, oh, from Rehumanize International? Yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard of the consistent life ethic. Um, and I think that is has really largely been thanks to the work that Amy has done over the years of building these connections. Um, and so I think that you know every year it gets a little easier to go into these what might be a hostile space to a consistent life ethic person, um, but slowly is becoming um, a more welcoming space and a more um, agreeable space where there are people who not only agree with us, but who say they agree with us and are wearing our merch before I even need to try to sell them a t-shirt. By the way, go to our web store, rehumanizeintl.org slash shop to get that merch so that I can mention you in the podcast. There's still, is there still a sale going on or was that just? On yeah, the there will be um, until the end of August for the 10th birthday. Uh, it is coupon code 10 years, one zero Y-E-A-R-S for 25% off. 25% off. Yeah. 25% all, off all merch. Only available till the end of August, the end of our birthday month. Um, so go to our web store. And You're going to be also, hearing this at the end of August. So uh, get mm -hmm. on it. As soon as you hear this, go on and buy your merch. Yeah. Also, while you're on the website, also go to rehumanizeintl.org slash conference to get tickets for our annual conference that will be next month, um, September 4th. 2021 if you're listening to this in the future sorry you missed it but if you are listening in the present and it is before August, before september 4th go to rehumanizeintl.org slash conference to get tickets to our virtual conference yeah that's honestly one thing that i am really proud of is how how much our conference has grown over the years. Um, we had our first conference back in 2014 at Villanova University. Um, and it was in this big like practice gym at Villanova and all of the main session talks were practically illegible. I, I don't even know what the word is for like, you can't hear it correctly. Because there was such an echo in the gym that you couldn't hear everything properly and like half the tables like i had forgotten to get 
tablecloths for and it was just like such a learning experience from day one because I mean I was doing this all on a volunteer basis I had other jobs that I was working to try to make money because we were so new that we didn't have the sort of support that we have now um and so like being able to have the support we have now to have full-time staff um like Herb like Sarah Um, you know, I'm part-time and, you know, Maria also works for us on a contract basis. And it's just amazing to see what we've been able to pull together because of the support of our donors and our friends and, you know, like collaborative organizations, uh, who we've worked with over the years. Um, and I think it's just been amazing to see how, to see also like how we've pivoted through the pandemic, uh, to make sure that our events are accessible, uh, to make sure that we can, can still, to make sure that we can still spread this message of human dignity of nonviolence, um, you know, regardless of age or circumstance for any human being across the miles, like last year for our conference, we had folks from like, Japan and Australia and Ireland and I'm sure there are other places that I am forgetting like all over the U.S. Um, And that was just really, really neat to see that our message is traveling that far that, uh, you know, people all over the world are really craving this consistent philosophy that speaks to human dignity in all circumstances, um, you know, to, to search for this movement that is inclusive and to be a part of something, um, you know, be a part of a movement where we hope to be building a future beyond violence where every human being is respected, valued, and protected. Like, it's just so cool that, you know, we had, over 250 attendees last year and they came from all over the world i tend to look at things like in a kind of historical sense and uh i think that like when there is a movement that needs to be heard like somebody eventually will end up doing it and will and people will group around uh the person saying what needs to be said uh do you think that there's kind of like a reason why this is the moment where kind of this narrative is really picking up and starting to get off the ground because i mean we're not rehumanize isn't the first people to discuss the consistent life ethic like this isn't a new concept per se but this this way of presenting it, I think, and in this concept, I really think it might be because, I mean, as, as we talked about last month on the environmental episode, like we're kind of at an intersection of it's just a, a carnival of specific horrors <laughs> where, I mean, there's a crisis in confidence in in both of the parties. So like being nonpartisan is uh, a good thing a good thing in the eyes of probably now most people uh we can like see the the intersecting crises of you know environmental collapse and also how uh in poverty and uh war and how the typical answers to that like oh if there's oh climate change is caused by overpopulation. So that means like, you know, we need to get rid of superfluous people. Like, I think people are kind of realizing now that, Oh, that's, that's probably me. Like (laughs) I'm probably one of the superfluous people that the, that they would prefer not be existing and taking up resources on this planet. Like, I don't know. I I feel like really this is a a moment, a historical moment where all of the things that have dehumanized us 
in the past and have been able to be siloed because someone was at the very least benefiting from siloing that type of violence uh like the the silos are breaking and all of us are getting screwed for it so <laughs> um a very very re- depressing cause for hope i yeah, guess yeah no, no it's it's re- <laughs> it's really interesting because if you look throughout history um this is a very particular historical moment um for this philosophy um you know like in the early christian church um there was you know like one of the first major movements for uh like total nonviolence uh you know like total non-aggression um and like early christian pacifists really uh like we well rather the history of the church being drawn like through the Roman empire because of Constantine kind of upended that uh, reputation from the early church. Um, and then you have, you know, like movements of uh, within Buddhist and Hindu and Jainist thought uh, of ahimsa and, you know, like basically this, this total principle of nonviolence that uh, Gandhi eventually uh, turned political uh, with Satyagraha. Um, And so like we have this other religious movement related to, you know, like uh, nonviolence and non-aggression that exists in the world. Um, And then with with the advent of total war in the 20th century, um, with World War One, um, you know, called the war to end all wars, uh, and World War Two, there was a movement of personalists who uh, were simultaneously fighting off these two different ideological movements. Um, the first being individualism, you know, this idea that the rights of the individual to liberty, to, uh, you know, happiness supersede the common good. And on the other side, this, um, authoritarian collectivism that saw the good of the collective as the ultimate good such that it would trample on the rights of the individual. And so this movement of personalism was really about like, okay, we see the inherent dignity of the human being. And we also acknowledge, you know, like the rights of that human being within the context of the common good, within the context of the collective. And it sought to kind of bridge that gap um that movement really flourished in like france and we do have like some iterations of latin american and north american uh like personalist academics but in general it didn't really start to touch society right like it was just kind of something that was talked about in the university then we have this, these intersections of social movements that are unfortunately like politically opposed because they're siloed, right? Where you have like, oh, like if you want to be anti-abortion, you have to be a Republican. And if you want to be anti-war, you have to be a Democrat sort of thing, right? Or like, you know, if you want to support uh, the rights of the elderly and the disabled against euthanasia, you've got to be a Republican. But if you want to support the rights of the immigrant and the refugee, you've got to be a Democrat. Like we have these, these siloed and separated uh, socio-political movements that are coming head to head with each other because people aren't seeing the inherent dignity of the human person that, you know, is threaded through all of these issues. Um, so I kind of see the the moment that we're in 
as inescapable in a way because you have these young people like millennials and Gen Z who are being faced with this inconsistent political system and that doesn't respect the rights of every human being that doesn't acknowledge our, you know, like common, our common good, our common destiny, our common home as something worthy of respect. Um, and it's really interesting because when you look at the statistics, um, the millennial generation is the most politically unaffiliated in the history of the nation thus far. Um, they might have new data on Gen Z uh, since the past election that I'm not I'm not totally sure about, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were also, you know, quite uh, disinclined to affiliate with a particular party. Um, the millennial generation was also the most secular. Uh, you know, the most likely to identify religiously as a nun, uh, not an N-U-N, like religious sister nun, but like N-O-N-E, like none of the above. I don't relate to any of these religions. Is that category um, separate, separate from atheist agnostic as well, right? Or is yeah, atheist agnostic linked into it? I believe yeah. so, yeah. Okay, I think that's also important because... Like, I think it shows just kind of like a general detachment from like a collectivity, basically. Like, even to call yourself an atheist, you know, you have to identify with a group. Yeah, I mean, to me, uh, and this might be my own personal bias talking, um, I think it really demonstrates a lack of trust in authority figures mm -hmm. because yeah, of... Uh, actions that are hypocritical or, you know, like that don't line up with the stated values of the group. Um, and, you know, we're, we're also the most, you know, like pro LGBT generation in the history of the country. So like we have all these different factors that are going on to point us towards the, their underlying desires, I think. And what I see when I look at these statistics is people who are looking for consistency in, you know, like belief and in action, in uh, authenticity, you know, like your life is aligned with the principles that you say you believe. And above all, a care and respect for the dignity of each and every human. Um, and it's so like when we look at those three things, I'm like, oh, a rehumanized international is the answer. <laughs> and of course, like I'm biased. I started the organization. So, uh, you know, like I perhaps I'm seeing what I want to see in the statistics. But I think our growth as an organization over the past 10 years is a testament to that. So before we wrap up, we talked about the past. We talked about the present. Now, what what does the future look like for Rehumanize? What are what are the next ten years? We're this is our starting point right now. We've kind of are at the best of the best of worlds. The it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Like we have, we have a maybe maybe it's just the worst of times. Actually, <laughs> it should be the best. Like I, I feel like rhetorically, like we have a a Catholic Democrat president who uh, <laughs> has claimed to be in the past, at least pro-life uh, who uh, maybe, maybe we uh, could have had in another life, like more, more opportunities to break into the mainstream under a Biden administration, but <laughs> not, not, not just on life issues, but on issues of uh, like, war and immigration and uh, torture and uh, refugees uh on climate like just a massive disappointment in all of those things that democrats are like supposed to be the good guys on um like what where where do we go from here that's a really huge question um 
you know, I, when I think about the future, I get really excited about what's possible. Um, especially when it comes to the fact that we are entering a new era with rehumanize too. Um, we really are focusing at this point on making the consistent life ethic um, digestible and accessible on a community level where, you know, we want to see these, these principles lived out on a local level because we understand ultimately, right. That all politics is local, that the only way that we change the world is by starting in our neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, we, we really have been uh, putting our effort and energy into getting the rehumanized affiliate communities off the ground and the uh, allied groups program off, also off the ground. Um, but honestly, like, as I'm stepping back, I am working on some final projects um, that, you know, have been on my docket, some of them since 2016. Um and Herb is getting to take the reins with the groups and speaking engagements and attending conferences and all sorts of things like that. So I don't know. I would love to hear from Herb more about like his vision for the future. The future. The future. Yeah. I mean, I think that the way I see it, the past 10 years of the work that Amy has done um, and the whole team has done has really been laying the groundwork for what is ahead. I think that, um, as Amy sort of talked about, like she's had countless one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Um, and so have I over the past several years, um, and have really done the work of changing hearts and minds on these issues. And I think that we've learned that we're really good at that. Um, and we could keep doing it forever. Um, and I've sort of thought about it, like, I wish I could just clone me and Amy and Maria and just send a million of us out to talk to every American so that we can eventually start, you know, voting for good policies overall. Um, but obviously there's bioethical implications with cloning, so I can't do that. <laughs> and so instead, uh, what we are doing is working to organize and activate the next generation of people who can come after us to go and do it in their own communities so that I don't need to waste the fossil fuels to go fly around to every community and um, speak at all these different events. Because ideally there will be a consistent life ethic leader in every city um, under the banner of Rehumanize who is able to you know, organize and make sure that um, whether it's the, the universities or banks in that city um, are divested from the military industrial complex or people on the ground in that city or town are able to be outside the abortion clinics doing sidewalk counseling um, and doing sidewalk advocacy and you know all of the other, the service projects, writing to um, inmates on death row or otherwise, uh, organizing to abolish the death penalty, all of these things that sort of me and Amy have been doing for years, um, but to to basically clone us to find to to find the people who are interested in that kind of work and train them how to do it, and that is what we are doing um, with our chapters program, which really is just getting off the ground this year. Unfortunately, again, it's been getting off the ground in a year where there is a novel coronavirus pandemic. Um, so, the the one on one face to face conversations are a little bit harder because most things are based virtually for now. Um, but yeah, I think that is the future. I think it is finding the other finding the people out there who thus far have just sort of been following us on Instagram and liking and sharing the posts um, and activating them and getting them to to be the Amy in their community so that Amy can retire eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see all of my friends all over the country, all over the world get involved with us as you know grassroots leaders for the consistent life ethic. So if you want to learn more about how to get involved with that, go to rehumanizeintl.org slash community, where you can find more information about how to ally your existing group 
or how to start a new rehumanized chapter right where you are. Yeah, do that. All right. We should probably wrap this up soon. Amy, do you have anything else you want to share? Usually I tell the guests like plug something. Do you, you know, do you have a book coming out? Do you have an event coming up? Um, but you can just plug rehumanize international. <laughs> <laughs> the conference we've been doing it this entire time because we are yeah. shameless yeah um yeah so the next big project that i have coming down the pipeline is a nonfiction book um basically a short foundational primer on the consistent life ethic where it'll walk you through what is the consistent life ethic where did it come from and you know how do we talk about it to all the different singular issues, all those different little life issues, you know, including abortion, embryo destruction, uh, war, the death penalty, uh, torture, uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide. Like it's going to talk about all those things. It's going to talk about, um, you know, the, the different justifications and forms of dehumanization that uh, exist in the culture to make violence more palatable. Uh, to us as individuals, to us as part of a society. Um, and I really hope that it will be a good groundbreaking tool for these different grassroots communities around the world, um, you know, that we, we hope to equip and educate to be able to talk about these hard issues on the ground in their communities. Um, so Keep an eye out for that, uh, hoping it'll be out in 2022, but we'll see. I'm nearly done with it, and I'm really excited to get it into the hands of all of our community leaders around the world. Um, but in the meantime, you should make sure to attend our conference again. That's Saturday, September 4th. You can get tickets, which are pay what you want. Uh, you know, as little, as little as $5 up to a hundred dollars, you know, however much you think your conference attendance is worth. And they count as a tax deductible donation to fund our work throughout the year. At rehumanizeintl.org slash conference. Great. Well, thank you, Amy, for coming on and for promoting all the projects that we do throughout the year. Um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. And I can't wait to see what lies ahead in the next 10 years and beyond. Thanks for being on. This was uh, Emiliano. And Herb. And Amy. And Amy. <laughs> Sorry. You, we you, didn't you, practice you that with her. She wasn't ready for that. <laughs> She she like knew what was she was what she was supposed to do though, and I still cut her off. This so. was Emiliano, Amy, and Herb, and we're signing off now. Okay, that was the 10th anniversary special. I don't really know why I'm calling it that. I don't know if Maria is actually going to make that the title, but that's what I'm calling it. I just, this whole year, I've been saying 10th anniversary for things. Um, basically, every project that I do, I'm like, well, this is 10 years of Rehumanize um, because I'm so excited about it. We should I, hype I don't it. Know if we should hype it. Are as excited. We should what? We should hype it still. 10th I agree. Anniversary I think this whole year I've been like, this is our 10th year. And now that this is the actual month of the anniversary, it's like, this is the birthday. It's my birthday month. Make sure Not to mine. put like some uh, like cake emojis and like bal balloon emoji in the, in the title, Maria. Uh, yeah. Maria, I want to add the festive atmosphere that we need for this. Episode. That's what Maria posted on Twitter when we uh, were sharing about the 10th anniversary of rehumanize. Um, she had many emojis and I was like, yes, this, this is the birthday. Bring that you. same energy for the, the podcast title. Please, Maria. Um, so yeah, it was nice to have Amy on. Uh, I feel like people are obsessed with Amy as I am also obsessed with Amy. Um, 
but I feel like I go to events sometimes and people will be like, you know, Amy Murphy. And I'm like, yeah, she was my boss. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I'm one of the few people who I think didn't learn of Rehumanize and Life Matters Journal from the internet. I just like met Amy Murphy one day at a pro-life event and I had never heard of um, the LMJ stuff before then. And I just like slowly got more and more involved until I was like a volunteer, then an intern, then an employee and now executive director. And so um, I I hope that all of the Amy Murphy stands out there, of which I know there are many, were excited to see her on this episode. Hear her. Hear her. Hear her. Yeah, we don't. We, we, we have video up, but we don't show the masses that. It's, no. It's private. Maybe they, one day we'll, we'll have the, the YouTube podcast like some people have, but they couldn't handle <laughs> they couldn't handle the thirst. <laughs> Talk about that. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> um okay, anything else you want to share, Emiliano? Uh nope. Um yeah, this was a long one anyway. This was a long, this was a long episode, yeah. Uh thanks everybody for listening in on the Rehumanized podcast. 10 years, 10, 10 more years. years, a whole decade. We're one tenth of the way to a century. Wow. We really are. In which time we will have won. Oh yeah. We better still not exist in a century. All of these issues better have been solved by then or I'm going to be mad when I'm 104. Wait, that's, that was, that was bad math. That would imply that I'm, I'm four now. No. How old am I? I'm not good at math. Listen, I was a liberal arts major. I, I don't know any of these answers. Um, I am signing us off before I have to think more about math. Uh, this has been Herb Garrity. And Emiliano Vera. We sign on and off so many times, but yeah. that is the last one. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye.